Thank you, Megan. Let's pray together. Father, we uh, are grateful to come this morning and to worship you and to sing of the truth of the gospel story that is our story. And as we reflect on that, we recognize where we fit in it, that you, because of your great love for us, have sent Jesus to us, that his life and his death and his resurrection on our behalf has invited us into the family of God. We are forgiven, we are freed, and we long for Jesus' return, where we will be with him forever, with you forever in the new heavens and the new earth. So Lord, thank you for where we fit in that story, and thank you that we can come each week and rehearse that and remind ourselves and one another of the truth of the gospel. Would you take just a moment to ask the Lord to speak to you from his word this morning? Lord, thanks for your faithfulness to speak, for your faithfulness to lead. May we walk with you and trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it is... uh, August. It's fun to be uh, a little bit back. Things are kind of kicking back in, and it is great to be together and great to, to worship the Lord with one another. Um, as Courtney said, we're glad you're here. Uh, we want to welcome you and, uh, and make sure if you are visiting, we'd love to know you're here. We'd love to help you get connected to a lot of the mysteries that right now in particular really begin to kind of kick back up here in August in the life of our church. So it's good to be together. Oh, over the summer, we've been walking through uh, Hebrews 11, which is a chapter really focused on what it means to walk by faith. And those words, by faith, are intentional over and over and over again in the book of Hebrews and, in the, and especially in chapter 11. And, and so the question has come up a lot over the summer is what, what does it mean to walk by faith? Or, or maybe another way to say it is, what do we need to walk by faith? What do we need? What do we need to see? Is it more data? You know, all the details. Is it more knowledge, just a better understanding of of what's happening? Is it possibly just we need to see a miracle or two or three? Caught to countless people over the years who said, if God would do this thing, miraculous thing, then I will trust him. And usually that's really deeply personal. Because if God will, will heal this family member who's sick, or if God will, will uh, restore this brokenness in me, this challenge I've had for decades, then I will trust him. But the problem is, as you read the Old Testament over and over and over again, the people who had the data, the people who had the knowledge, and even the people who saw miracle after miracle after miracle did not trust God. And so what do we need to see? What do we need to know? What do we need to trust him? And today, as you heard in the reading, we're going to talk about a sort of unsuspecting character, Rahab. And this is, this is over and over again in the Old Testament. We see the people of God who have seen God do miraculous things don't trust him. And then we see these surprising people who, who often aren't a part of the people of God, who often are the last one we would expect, who did not see God do those things, and they trust. 
If you remember, we said, Hebrews 11.1, that faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things unseen. You see, the question, what do we need to see to trust, is actually the wrong question. Because faith, by definition, is the conviction of things we can't see. And so as we come to the story of Rahab, I want to kind of, we get one sentence in Hebrews 11, so let me kind of, we're going to paint the picture of the story. If you remember, the people of God, they have left Egypt, and now they are ready to go into the promised land, and, and Joshua is in charge. And, and Moses has, has passed on. Joshua is in charge. He's going to lead the people into the promised land. God says, I have given you this land. And so what does Joshua do? He takes some spies. He grabs two spies. And, you know, he's a good leader. He sends them in. Let's go figure it out. Let's go see what we need to understand, how tall are the walls, where are the holes, what's the military defeat like. You know, let's, let's send some spies in. But if we are one who's just reading this story chronologically, and he says he's sending spies, all of us kind of go, oh, no. We remember another time where the people of God sent spies into the promised land. And it was Moses. He sent 12 spies. Joshua is one of those. Joshua and Caleb come back. And the two of them, they say, this land is unbelievable. This land is beautiful, and God is giving it to us. But the other 10 spies, they come out and say, no, 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 no. The people are huge. We are like grasshoppers to them. The cities are fortified. And it says, this land, they say, will devour us. And who do the people believe? They believe the 10 spies. They go, oh, were there not enough graves in Egypt? Because you, you want to pull us out of slavery? We could have died of old age as slaves, but you want to bring us into this new land so that we die by the sword? They've seen God deliver them over and over and over again. And they come to this moment where they're entering into the land that God has said, I'm giving you. And they say, I'm not going to trust. And I want to look at exactly what God says to them after that, because I think it's interesting. Numbers 14 Verse 11, the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? Now think about all the things they've seen. I mean, we could just go through a couple of them. One, the Passover, God freeing them from decades, hundreds, centuries of slavery in Egypt and then passing over their family to protect them and to go. The crossing of the Red Sea, they go in and uh, manna, God providing every single day food from heaven. And they come to this and they go, we can't do it. The land will devour us. And I wonder how often this is us We've seen God provide. We've seen God come through time and time again. We've seen, be, we've seen God be with us in our hardest, darkest moments. Even when our worst fears happened, we've seen God be with us and faithful in it. And we come to the next step and we say, I don't know if I can trust him. I don't know if I can really trust that he'll provide, that he'll come through, that he will be with me. And so if we're just reading the stories, Joshua's sending spies. The question is, okay, well, how's this going to go? 
I mean, last time we sent spies, it didn't go so well. And now here we are 40 years later. And so he sends the two spies. He wants to see what's it like in, in Jericho. We know Jericho is a, is a city with walls. Um, and, and if you're thinking about Jericho, it's, um, I often thought of it as so big, but it's actually only about 10 to 13 acres. And if you're like, that means nothing to me. That means this land that we're on, including the, the, the lot back here, is, uh, is two and a half acres. So it's like four of these. That's Jericho. It's not that big. But it is the gateway into the promised land. And it's a fortified city and it's known for its strength. And so he says, I'm going to send my spies in. I'm going to see what happens. And so uh, the question is, are we going to have what happened before? Are they going to shrink in fear? Or are they going to trust? And so turn with me to Joshua chapter 2 as we look at this story. I'll have it on the screen as well. Joshua, the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, go view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. It's an interesting place for them to land. Uh, and it was told to the king of Jericho, behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent to Rahab saying, bring out the men who have come to you who entered your house for they have come to search out all of the land. So this is not off to a great start. The two spies, they find themselves at a prostitute's house. By the way, they were not that sleuthy because the king knows they came. And he's like, hey, uh, spies came and they went to Rahab's house. Send for them, right? This is not looking good. It's often not off to a good start. But the woman, verse four, had taken the two men and had hidden them. And she said, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went, but pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and had hid them with the stalks of flask that she had laid in order on the roof. And so the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. And so flax, this kind of, this thing is, you know, they would uh, soak flax planks for like two to three weeks, and then they would put them on the roof to let them dry for days on, on end. So they are underneath the soaking wet flax planks. That's how they would make linen and clothes. And so nobody's searching there for these guys. And so she has hid them successfully. But why would she do this? Why would she lie? I mean, to someone who's sent from the king, I mean, the only possible consequence if she's caught is to die. Uh, they're going to kill her for lying to the king about the a, about a, a potential um, spies that have come in. Why would she lie? Well, Thankfully, we're told. Look at verse 8. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof, and she said to the men, listen to this. I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard now the Lord, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Can you imagine what the spies thought when they heard this? Their jaw must have dropped to the ground. This pagan, polytheistic, Canaanite woman who is a prostitute says, we know God is giving you this land. It's an unbelievable faith 
that she has to trust in God without seeing. Did you notice the the word there? We have heard. We have heard what happened at the Red Sea. We weren't there. We didn't see the, the Red Sea part. We have heard what happened on the other side of the Jordan when you took down those pretty, you know, formidable enemies in Sion and Og. We have heard about it. We didn't see it. You saw it. But we have heard about it, and we believe. The people of God, compared to the, to the old spies, they have seen God do things over and over and over again. They have all the data. They have all the knowledge. They have the miracles, and they shrink back in fear. And Rahab and the people of Jericho say, this God is coming for us and we are doomed. It's over. This is conviction of things unseen. This is faith. This is why Rahab is in Hebrews 11. She believes first in the power of God. Because, you know, no matter how fortified Jericho is, no matter what their military is like, if the God who's on their side can split the Red Sea, then they got nothing. God is all-powerful. If he has this kind of power, then, then we, have, we literally can do nothing. But, he, but she also has faith in the faithfulness of God. He is clearly on their side. Clearly. I mean, that battle at Sihon and Og, you know, delivering them from Egypt, they have heard about this and they know that God is faithful. He is with them. And then Rahab says something so utterly unexpected. I want to just read it again. I read it at the end of 11. She says, for the Lord, anytime you see the the word Lord in capital letters, it is the covenant name of God. It is Yahweh. She, this Canaanite, polytheistic, pagan woman says, the Lord, Yahweh, your God, look at what she says. She says, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now, I don't want to miss what an amazing declaration this is. I mean, again, as a pagan polytheistic person, it would have made sense if she said, you have a God who is very powerful. They believe in lots of gods. That's not what she says. She says, your God, the covenant name of God, he is God. This declaration is unbelievable that he is the one true God in the heavens and on the earth and everywhere else. What she's saying is I no longer believe in all these other gods that I have worshiped probably my whole life. I believe in the one true God and it is him. So she's not only saying I believe in the power of God, in the faithfulness of God. She says, I believe in the supremacy of God. That God alone is God. And so if this is true, he's all powerful, he's always faithful, and he's absolutely supreme, what does she do? She risks it all. Of course she does. Because he's all powerful. He's always faithful and he's utterly supreme. She says, I'll risk it all. Yeah, I might die. But it's worth it to risk it because of who this God is. Now, when I think about this kind of faith, I'm incredibly compelled by it and convicted by it. Because do we believe in the power of God? Do we believe in the faithfulness of God? Do we believe in the supremacy of God? Of course we do. 
We just sang it. We gather here every week and we sing it, right? We say it. Today we sang, let us speak of all your splendor, claim the wonders of your works, tell the world of all your power, shout out loud and sing with joy. We said, we believe the deliverance from my enemies till all my fears are gone. You are all I have and you are all I need. Of course we believe this. But what did that belief cause Rahab to do? To risk it all. To change everything. It wasn't just a mental assent to believe this thing. Yes, she said a a very bold statement that the Lord is God. But what she then did was to say, I'm going to trust him alone. I'm going to put all my eggs in one basket and believe that that his priorities are my priorities. And when I think about this for us, I'm I'm convicted that how often our life looks kind of like everybody else's. Is the power of God, the faithfulness of God, the supremacy of God, does it change our priorities? Does it change our schedule? Does it change how we arrange our our time, our money, our life, our work? What decisions we make? Does it change our our definition of, of the good life? Or are we kind of like, you know, God's, yeah, he's powerful, but I don't know about all powerful. I, I better hold on to some control. I'll just, I'll just kind of grip tightly on that. Or maybe go, oh, you know, God's faithfulness, it's, uh, it's iffy at best. Um, I better like arrange my, I mean, I'll trust in it, but I'm going to arrange my, my world to make sure I'm covering every, all my bases. Or is God supreme? Like, well, actually kind of my agenda is supreme. The things I want, the things I'm told I should need or, or go do, my schedule, do some of these, that's kind of supreme. And, and God's right there. I mean, he's, you know, he's in there. Or is he supreme? Everything bows to him. She risked it all. Her faith led her to say, I will put all of my eggs in one basket. All of my priorities have changed because God is all-powerful always faithful and utterly supreme. Now, Rahab's, uh, Rahab's faith shines bright in this story. In fact, it is her faith that spurs on the faith of the Israelites to then go into the land. In fact, this time, the spies come back with a great message. Instead of coming back saying, like, we're grasshoppers, their people are huge, it's fortified. And I'm not going to read it, but uh, I love this because they say it in past tense. They say, surely the Lord has given all the land into our hands. Now, it doesn't really seem like, the story doesn't really tell us that the spies got really any military intel. Uh, they don't know how tall the walls are necessarily. They don't know where the holes are. They don't know kind of, you know, what's happening kind of in, in the, you know, okay, what's our strategy going to be? And I'm sure the military strategists were like, you did what? Uh, we need more data, okay, before we move forward. But that's actually not what they needed. What do they need? They needed faith and the power of God, the faithfulness of God, and the supremacy of God. And so Rahab's faith spurs them to go into Jericho, as we heard in the reading, and if we heard this story before, to walk around the city seven days. And on the, on the seventh day, to walk around it seven times so that God could quite literally give them the land. It's unbelievable. 
what this faith spurred them to do. Now, there's one more thing that she does in this, and, uh, and I, and I want to look at it back in Joshua chapter 2, verse 12. She says, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. Now, there's something Rahab knows about this God. Not only is he all-powerful, not only is he ever faithful, not only is he supreme, but there's something in the heart of God that she trusts in. She trusts, again, look at this language, swear to me by the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant name of God, swear to me by him. Yes, you have some power. Yes, I'm dealing nicely with you. Why don't you deal nice with me? It's kind of, we think, oh, that's what she's saying. But look what she's actually saying. She's saying, I want you and me together to trust in the God of the universe to deal kindly with me. And this word kindly is, is this great word. We talk about it all the time in the, in the Old Testament because it's used 250 times in the Old Testament. And it's the Hebrew word hesed, which, which you see translated a lot of different ways. Loyal, uh, loving kindness, faithful love, steadfast. It's, a, it's love based on a promise or an agreement or a covenant. She says, swear to me by the Lord that you will deal kindly with me. Here's something she believes that I, I think we could miss in this story. She believes in the covenant love of God. She believes that this God, who is literally coming to destroy Jericho, will show mercy, kindness, loving kindness, loyal love, because of who God is. So I wonder for us, is our faith based upon the Hesed of God, the loyal love of God, the love that is based upon a promise, not upon a feeling. Do we really believe that he is good and that he's good to you and me? Do we really believe he has our best interest in mind all the time? That's what this kind of faith looks like. And I think of this list here, it's a pretty good grid for us to say if we really believe that he is all-powerful, that we really believe that he is always faithful, we really believe that he is supreme over everything else, we really believe that his dealings with us will be kind and loving. That doesn't mean there's not going to be pain and suffering, but he will be with us in it, and he will deal kindly and lovingly with us. We can lay it all down. We can trust him because of who he is. Now, we're told, Rahab the prostitute, Hebrews 11, did not perish. So spoiler alert, it worked. She gets saved. She does not die when everyone else dies and her family is saved. But we're told a lot more than that. We're told that not only was she saved, uh, but she began to come and live with the people of God, we're told. Uh, and so her faith is given her this opportunity to be a part of the family of God. What a beautiful redemption story. From enemy to friend, from prostitute to faithful follower of God, from outcast to part of the family of God. In fact, even another layer of this is a part of the family of God. 
Because Rahab marries an Israelite. And they have a little boy they call Boaz, who grows up to redeem another Gentile, broken woman who shows incredible faith, Ruth. And so what happens with this, and this is just unbelievable if we're seeing the whole story, is that Rahab is the, is the mother to Boaz who marries Ruth, who guess what? They have a child who has another child, who has another child who is King David. That they are in the line of King David. But then if you fast forward all the way to Matthew chapter one, we see the lineage of Jesus. We see Rahab's name in that lineage. Rahab, the polytheistic, pagan, Canaanite woman, not a Jew, who is a prostitute, is in the line of Jesus. This is, an, again, a beautiful story of redemption. That God takes broken things and he redeems them for his glory. And so why is Rahab in the lineage of Jesus? Because this Messiah was coming to do just that, to redeem broken people, that her story is our story. We're called enemies of God. We're called far from God. And yet God, because of Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection, just like Rahab was willing to sacrifice, Jesus does sacrifice. He says, I'm going to die on the cross, the death that you and I deserved. And because of that, if we believe in it, we are restored into the family of God. As we sang, I am a child of God. That's only because of what Jesus did for us. And so this story continues on. And so we, as outcasts, are invited in. We, as enemies, have become friends. We are invited into the family of God, as children of God. I don't want us to miss this opportunity to say that, that the most important question of what we will believe or trust is do we believe that what Jesus came to do his life and his death and his resurrection was for you and for me so that we would be forgiven, we'd have eternal life, we would be free, and we would have a secure identity as a child of God. You see, this is what Rahab's story reminds us of. It's God's work, it's his redemption, but it's also her faith and her trust in him alone. And so I think as, I, as we close, as we prepare our hearts for communion, I, I want us just to ask if we can trust God for all of that, salvation, deliverance, eternal life, that makes the trusting him in the little every day possible. And yet I recognize that for each one of us, as we look at that list, it may be that for some of us, we're, we're struggling to trust in the power of God because we really like to be in control. Or maybe we're, we're struggling to trust in the faithfulness of God that, that I better just arrange everything to make sure it's all okay. Or maybe we're tr- struggling to, to trust in the supremacy of God, that what he says is supreme over anything else, any other agenda. Or maybe we're, trusting, or maybe we're struggling to trust in the love of God. His faithful love is not based upon what you and I do, It's not based upon who we are. It's not based upon a feeling. It's based upon a covenant that God has made with us that he has fulfilled through his son, Jesus, alone. So the invitation today is, 
even when we can't see, we trust. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Rahab's faith. And what an example it is to us. And Lord, I thank you that the story of Rahab really points to the, to the bigger story. The story that you are always about redeeming broken things. And that we, who were far from God, who were enemies of God, and who are outcasts of the family of God, have been invited in if we believe in our Savior Jesus. And so, Lord, we recognize that many of us in here, we, we believe all those things. We believe in your power, we believe in your faithfulness, we believe in your supremacy, and we believe in your love. And we could say it, we could sing it, We could preach this sermon. But Lord, we long to live it. We long to put all of our eggs in one basket. We long to let that be what shifts and shapes our priorities and our life. So Lord, would you show us what we actually need to see is you. Your power, your faithfulness, your supremacy, and your love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.